We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Last Innocence, published by HarperCollins, the author Michael Leahy. Just briefly, Michael Leahy is the author of Hard Lessons and When Nothing Else Matters, Michael Jordan's Last Comeback. His award-winning career has included 13 years as a writer for the Washington Post and the Washington Post Magazine. Michael's 2005 Washington Post Magazine story about a California sperm donor won the Society of Professional Journalists Award for Best Magazine Story of the Year. His stories have been selected four times for the annual Best American Sports Writing Anthologies. Please join me as we welcome Michael Leahy to the clubhouse. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for, for coming to the clubhouse, oh, Michael. Jay, my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for, for all that you do for writers uh, uh, around the country. Uh, it's, uh, you make a huge contribution to baseball literature, and, and uh, everybody knows about the clubhouse, and uh, we're all beneficiaries of it, so we thank you. Uh, thank you. I, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, so now back to Michael's book. Uh, if you could, if you could just let us know how this uh, extremely well-researched project came about. Um, I, I've spent most of my career writing about social issues and politics and sports. And in 2000, from, from mid-2007, through the end of 2008, I found myself covering the 2008 presidential campaign. And um, uh, after it became clear that uh, your former mayor was not going to win the Republican <laughs> nomination in 2008, uh, the Washington Post, more or less in a process that can be likened to sort of drawing straws, uh, determined that I would spend the rest of 2008 covering the campaign of John McCain. And uh, so I was writing biographical pieces about McCain uh, throughout 2008. <coughs> At the end uh, of that election cycle, uh, in, on January 20th, 2009, as most of the country uh, readied themselves to be riveted by the inauguration of Barack Obama. I was on a plane winging toward Alaska uh, to do a story about how an Alaskan point guard, Sarah Palin, <laughs> was coping with defeat. And uh, as journalistically, uh, it was uh, akin to a new circle in Dante's head. <laughs> uh, and I thought, after all of that, I really deserve some kind of reward. <laughs> after the Palin piece and after uh, a year and a half plus of covering politics, and then, it, it, actually, if you can believe it, moving on from there to write some stories about a Virginia gubernatorial race, I really wanted a break from politics and social issues for a while. 
And I thought nothing would be more fun than to return to the land of my youth, Los Angeles, and write a story for the Washington Post about a man whom I'd long believed belonged in baseball's Hall of Fame. And that, of course, was Maury Wills. So I returned to Los Angeles sort of in the latter half of 2009, hoping for just one hour with this man who, you know, by then, very elderly, right? And uh, we agreed that we, we would meet at an empty Dodger stadium on a Dodger off day in, under the very hot Los Angeles sun. We would sit on the third base side, some seats on the third base side, and stare at second and third, where Maury, of course, had performed such magic. And I was hoping just for one hour of this man's time. And he was, as I say in the acknowledgments of the book, indefatigable and uh, talked for several hours. And I would say to him now and then, Maury, you want a break? Want to get something to drink? Want to use the facility? Anything? No, no. You, you need to use it, Michael. <laughs> you know. So he was wonderful. And the stories ranged from his feats uh, during that 1962 epic season when he broke Ty Cobb's single season stolen base record uh, to challenges off the field. Uh, and the, the interview was so rich that uh, uh, by the end of the research on that story, by which time I'd spoken to Sandy Koufax and a number of Moore's teammates, Tommy Davis, Wes Parker, and others, uh, I thought there was a book in all this. And, and probably one, as I, I open chapter one of the book, not, not that passage, uh, that section entitled Genesis, which serves as a prologue of sorts, but chapter one with that story that involves Koufax and Wills, because I think that was the anecdote that convinced me that, that a book was in, that, that, that there ought to be a book written about this. And for those of you who have, who have not already read the book, you know, Maury was in pursuit of Cobb's stolen base record. He was the first African-American baseball player to be challenging the revered record of a white legend. So perhaps predictably, there was hate mail coming in from white racists around the country, bags of it. And it was at the same time that Sandy Kovacs, who in 1962 was a year removed from that time when we would regard him as the greatest pitcher in baseball, but was already en route there, and who everybody could see was en route there, was receiving anti-Semitic mail. And so these two incredibly close friends struck upon this brilliant idea in retrospect. Each would open the other's mail and sift out the hate mail. And the story was so moving to me. And Koufax, when I spoke to Koufax about it, he provided some rich details that Maury had forgotten about, in, including that, that just wonderful detail about how he could recognize some of the crazies' letters by the crazy block printing on envelopes. You know, it sounded like something out of Unabomber or something, you know. 
And he, uh, then I went back to Maury, and Maury said, oh yeah, I remember that. And now I remember this too. So that each, you know, and each man, I mean, loved each other. I mean, they, they, they are, they love each other like brothers. Um, you know, Sandy, uh, decades later, uh, after Maury uh, uh, encountered a drug problem in the wake of his stint with the Seattle uh, club as, as a manager, Maury was an instructor for the New York Mets. And uh, Maury was doing a great job with the Mets and had gotten his life back in order and was the Maury everybody knew and loved again. And Jeff Torborg, who was very close to each man, like a brother to each man, let Sandy know, know that a new managerial opportunity looked like it was coming his way. And he was going to get Maury away from the Mets. He was going to get Maury to join his new staff. And Sandy, with a brotherly ferocity, said, I don't want you to do that. Maury's doing great right where he is with the Mets. Leave him alone. And because Torborg so admires Koufax and Wills, and because he was already always sort of a little brother to Koufax's big brother, he deferred. And uh, Maury remained where he was for the time being with the Mets, and Torborg went on to do his thing. So, you know, I would hear all these stories about commitment and uh, these complex <coughs> problems on and off the field, and I, I just thought, I have to write about this, and the Sarah Palins of the world would just have to wait. <laughs> Sandy Koufax versus Sarah Palin, I mean. No, that's right, no contest. Yeah, that's right. Uh, not to get political, but, I mean, come on. Uh, the, uh, just to ask, because there's all these uh, myths and images about that Koufax doesn't speak, and uh, to reporters or to whomever, when you reached out to him, was it difficult to get him to return the call? How, how did that go? It was tricky. Uh, you know, Sandy uh, uh, has seldom uh, talked to journalists in his life. And, uh, and when he does, uh, there are generally strict parameters. Uh, he couldn't have been more gracious with me uh, once he was on the phone. There were ground rules, uh, as there always are with Sandy. And the ground rule was that uh, Maury really set up the interview. And... Uh, uh, the ground rule was that I would not get Sandy's phone number, that Sandy would call me on a Labor Day weekend, and uh, uh, which he did, and Maury said, I, I want to sort of hold you to gentleman's honor. I know that a number will come up on your phone. Can you pledge not to write it down? <laughs> and uh, uh, I said, I pledge. And, uh, uh, and so when the phone call finally came, I saw the area code, so I can... I can attest to the fact that I know where, at that point in his life, <laughs> Sandy was living, but I, I did not look at the rest of the number. And, uh, uh, and, I got, and when Sandy got on the line, he just could not have been more insightful during our conversation about Maury and other players. And, uh, <coughs> and yet the ground rules were to be adhered to. He was, he was not interested in talking about himself. It was strictly about others. In this case, it was Maury and Tommy, Tommy Davis, and Wes Parker, and a couple other people in passing, but not about him. He, 
Um, I attended, as, as those of you who have read the book know, I was lucky enough as a child, as a 12-year-old, to attend Sandy's Perfect Game in 1965, uh, dumb, a stroke of dumb luck. And uh, like all journalists, although there were ground rules that we would largely confine our discussion to Maury, I sort of wanted at least to make an effort to get him to talk about the perfect game. I didn't want to hold back on that. wanted to find a way perhaps to rope him in. And uh, so I let it drop. I thought, cash, I thought shrewdly <laughs> that I had attended the perfect game as a child. <laughs> and that's what I heard. And I thought, damn, I've, I've, the connection has gone dead. Uh, I've lost him. I've, I've either offended him or the connection's gone dead because he was on a cell phone. And, uh, um, and finally, finally I got it. He was just waiting for me to change the subject. He wasn't going to reprimand me. He has too much grace for that. So he could not have uh, more skillfully uh, uh, or, or more grace, gracefully rebuked me in that moment. You know, I had violated the ground rules. He didn't want to say it. He just waited for me to catch on. And when I did, we moved on to talking more about Maury. So he, he, could, not, uh, he could not have been more graceful you know, in dealing with me. And I think, you know, and when you think about the way he dealt with Jeff Torborg, you know, he didn't say to Jeff Torborg, hey, you, you know, you're, you're not doing things the right way, blah, blah, blah. He just said, you know, as a brother would, just don't do that, Jeff. You know? So, you know, and, and on the subject of, of Maury, um, uh, you know, Sandy, I think, feels the way so many of us do, that if Maury had played his prime years in this great city for the team that I know so many of you wish had remained. Had he, had he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the late 50s and throughout the 1960s in the early 70s, I have no doubt that Maury Wills would be in the Hall of Fame today. I don't think enough East Coast sports writers really got a chance to see him. Game. There were few games on television during the early and middle 60s back here, a few games from Los Angeles. Um, uh, you know, when you look at Maury's lifetime batting average compares favorably to uh, two New York immortal shortstops, Phil Rizzuto and Pee Wee Reese, and it compares favorably to Louis Aparicio. He has more lifetime hits than Phil Rizzuto. He is just shy of Pee Wee Reese's mark in lifetime hits despite playing fewer seasons. Um, and he is, most importantly, a transformative force in the game, right? He is the one who paved the way for the Lou Brocks, the Tim Raines, the Ricky Hendersons of the world. He broke Cobb's record a full 12 years before Henry Aaron would break Babe Ruth's lifetime home run record. He was a trailblazer, a pioneer. And I think, if anything, sometimes, Baseball, our common sense gets clouded uh, by this allegiance the sport has to numbers. Uh, there was a time when we simply called them numbers. 
but in a sign of the inflated importance of baseball numbers today, we call them metrics. Um, we would, uh, other sports seem to have a more sensible approach to this, although in football, uh, several NFL Hall of Fame quarterbacks have superior lifetime statistics to your great Joe Namath. Uh, no one would dispute that Joe Namath belongs in the Hall of Fame. Transformative player. The architect, the, 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 uh, the captain of one of the great triumphs in football history. Uh, no, you know, in other walks of life, uh, say music, no one looks at uh, Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison of the Doors or Janis Joplin and says, despite the fact their careers ended uh, tragically at age 27, they don't belong in some Hall of Fame. They were likewise transformative form the forces. You know, uh, uh, Maury Wills was that kind of force in baseball. He changed. He was absolutely the most exciting offensive weapon in 62. There was no more exciting offensive weapon in 62 through uh, uh, the 1965 seasons. And I think there's a, there's a spot, besides the fact that his statistics are superior to those players I just mentioned, there's a spot in the Hall of Fame or ought to be for transformative forces. And let me, in addition to Maury's name, let me add one other player from this city who I believe belongs in there, the person whose feet during the 1960s captured imaginations and whose duel with Mickey Mantle in 1961 is unforgettable, and that's Roger Merrick. Absolutely. He belongs in the hall. So, um, well, the, uh, when we get to the Q&A, I have a feeling some of our crowd may want to uh, ask some more questions about Maury Wills okay. and Sandy Koufax. Okay. Uh, obviously, there's a ton in this book that goes into great depth. But for now, I want to move to, a, to another figure sure. in the book uh, who I think a lot of people are, are not as familiar with in some ways, uh, and that's Wes Parker. If you could just give us a, a, a little about Wes Parker. Sure. Um, Wes Parker was a revelation. Um, I interviewed Wes the first time uh, for the Washington Post story on Maury. And uh, we spoke strictly about Maury, but he was so eloquent and insightful about Maury. And he had that wonderful story about Maury where Maury tells him when Wes is playing in his first full year as a starter, as a first baseman, Maury says to Wes, come over here, Wes. I have a suggestion for you. I'd really like you to think of doing something for the team. And Wes, eager to please, says, absolutely anything. And Maury said, we have a big series, couple big series coming up against the Giants. And um, inevitably, there's going to be a moment when some Giant hits a ball to the gap to the right center field gap or the left center field gap, and 50,000 set of eyes are going to be on the ball rolling to the wall. And all the umpires are going to be looking at the ball rolling to the wall. All the players will be, the public address announcer, Vin Scully, the Giants announcer, everybody, security guards. When that giant is rounding first base, that's all you have to do is just 
<laughs> and Wes said, I can't do that. I can't do that. And Maury said, Wes, you know, most people would have given up by then, but not more and more. Wes, let me, let me tell you something. Whether it was McCovey or anybody else the Giants had at first base, they'd do it to you. You're going to do it now? <laughs> Wes, Wes, Wes couldn't be convinced. That was Moy, and that was his relationship with Wes. They were incredibly close. So Wes tells me this marvelous story, which Maury confirms in detail. And so the next time I was out in Los Angeles, um, I sat down for an interview with Wes over breakfast. And uh, my impression as a child growing up in Los Angeles was that there was, had been no more idyllic life for a, a Dodger than Wes Parker who grew up in affluence. He had people like Rita Hayward living down the street. Grew up among motion picture stars and business titans in the wealthy Los Angeles suburb of Brentwood. His father was a business titan, and uh, his mother had come from an impossibly wealthy background that was something out of Gatsby. And uh, so from the outside looking in, West could not have had it better. But what no one knew in Los Angeles, and what I learned that day, what Wes had never shared with any journalist, he had never shared with a teammate, not Maury, not Sandy, not Jeff Torborg, to whom he was close, because he didn't want these guys to think he wasn't mentally tough enough, was that he had been subjected to physical and emotional abuse as a child growing up in Brentwood and that he had feared for his life at times, and that for him, baseball was nothing less than his salvation. I wondered, in the, in the, in the years that followed, as he would tell me more of these stories, I wondered why, why tell, you know, I often wondered why tell me. And it was a question I had of a lot of the things that the principal subjects in the book were telling me, and I think the short answer, whether it was Wes or Maury or the, these other players involved, was that they have a keen sense of their mortality now. They have a sense that time is running short, and they want these stories out before it's too late. And I think furthermore, they wanted to tell these stories rather than have somebody 10 or 15 years after their death, perhaps, start relaying these stories on their behalf and get many of the aspects wrong. So Wes was just <coughs> remarkable. And, um, and one of my favorite memories of him is the way, you know, I, I, I will forever see him the way I saw him during one of our final interviews, in, in, which is the scene in which I sort of end the book. And I should mention for those who, who, who haven't read the book yet, and I don't, sometimes I'm always I'm fearful of giving away too much for people who haven't read it, but I hope you'll indulge me this, this one anecdote. Wes had played ball in high school and college, but, and some couple professional scouts had taken a look, but they weren't really interested. The feeling was he perhaps wouldn't be tough enough to withstand the grind of the minor leagues. This rich kid, right? And part of it too was that he, he wasn't powerful. And he was this fabulous fielder, but could he hit? So, that it, so there wasn't a great deal of interest. And 
he, uh, he, dropped, he dropped out of Claremont College uh, late during his collegiate career, transferred to USC, didn't play baseball there, got his degree, and then like a lot of rich boys do, ran off, on his family's money, ran off to Europe. And like a lot of rich, handsome young guys do in Europe at the, in that year, spent 99% of his time over there not looking at cultural sites, but chasing <laughs> women. And he was very good at it. So he was in Paris, he was sitting in a Paris hotel room one day, typically Wes beating himself up over his lack of direction and his, and he had incredibly low self-esteem, but like Wes too, was waiting on a woman. And um, a French, a beautiful French woman. So he's waiting in this room and he's thinking, what the hell am I gonna do with my life? I don't wanna live off my parents' money. Uh, it will make me miserable if I do. I don't think if I, I don't think I can live my life if I don't do this. I might not survive if I do this. What can happen to me? So he's sitting in this hotel room and he has this epiphany, which only, perhaps only a rich man child, because he sort of was that, he was almost 22, 23, but he was sort of a man child, only, you know, only a richy rich would. He thinks, I'll play for the Dodgers. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, it's, it's insane, right? And, and so he, uh, he leaves a note for the beautiful French woman. He runs down, he runs, he runs down the main boulevard in Paris to a TWA ticket office, buys a Paris, the next, uh, buys a plane ticket. The next morning he's off to Los Angeles, gets there and calls a guy, a former Dodger manager, whose father used to know a little bit, Charlie Dressen, and says, Mr. Dressen, I want to play for the Dodgers. <laughs> and Dressen's like, uh, kid, that's not the way it works. <laughs> but Dressen gives, gets him a tryout in this knock-around Los Angeles Winter League, and he distinguishes himself during the Winter League with his excellent play, and just as he would do later, uh, some of the other players are sort of rattled by the Cuban Missile Crisis. In the, in the fall of 1962, as, as are tens of millions of Americans. But Wes Parker, his concentration is entirely on the game because he doesn't think he can survive without making it. He really thinks horrible things will happen. It, it was the same thing he would feel a year later when he was in the Arizona Instructional League, when he would learn of President Kennedy's assassination. It was a trend that would follow him through the rest of his life. So Wes Parker was signed to a minor league contract. The Dodgers really signed him, he would learn later, only because they needed bodies in the minor leagues. They didn't think this kid was gonna make it. Something that a Dodger executive confessed in a note to Wes's father uh, down the road. Uh, but Wes did, and so remarkably, Nine, just 19, you know, usually it takes many years for a player signed, especially a player signed who enters at the low minor league level. It takes many years for them to reach the majors if they ever reach it at all. Just 19 months after Wes Parker sat in that Paris hotel room, 
waiting on that French woman. He was sitting in Dodger Stadium as a major leaguer, uh, which is just the most remarkable transformation I've ever heard of. He is, in my judgment, the unlikeliest major leaguer in history. Well, I have many other questions, but I have a feeling that, no, I could listen to you all night, but I have a feeling that some of the crowd may, so I, I want to give them a chance. Sure, absolutely. So, and if not, then I'll continue with my questions, but uh, does anyone want to? Yeah, I have read the book and really enjoyed it. My question is about DeRocher. Is that an O'Malley decision and why? Is that just to harass Boston? Uh, I think that was a, that was, uh, all the evidence indicates that that was a consensus decision, uh, one in which uh, the players had some role. Um, uh, uh, DeRocher's influence had waned. His effectiveness with the players had waned. Uh, there's that anecdote in the book where uh, uh, DeRocher, having seen Jeff Torborg work before games on, on catching throws at home plate and tagging out runners, right? Had, uh, uh, DeRocher had seen Torborg working on this with Pete Reeser and uh, uh, DeRocher, sort of ever the tough guy, right? Said to Torborg, if I were the runner, I could knock the ball. I could knock the ball out of your hand. On a, on a slide at home plate. I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Do you want to try? And you know, young Jeff Torbark, what is he, what is he gonna say? All right. Um, but you know, Torborg, Torborg wasn't a huge fan any longer either. The players knew that DeRocher had regularly badmouthed Walt Alston. Um, Maury wasn't crazy about him for that reason. You know, Maury loved Alston. Alston had given Maury his chance. And uh, uh, Wes Parker had heard DeRocher regularly bad-mouthing Austin. Wes didn't like it. You know, so DeRocher, he had, when he had arrived at, at, at the Dodgers as a coach, the reason he had, he had been, he'll be able to work with the players. He's this, uh, this legend of the game. The players will respect him. There was also a feeling that Leo would also be able to bring in a, his, a lot of his Hollywood friends as season ticket holders. So there was both O'Malley and Bavese could see uh, baseball reasons and financial reasons for having Leo there. But his influence was waned. He was alienating players. And now this moment had arrived where yet again he had said something in, vaguely insulting to a player. He had, he had insulted a young bonus baby for the Dodgers. As many of you have read in the book, Joe Moeller. He had insulted Moeller uh, often. And uh, so here's this moment. Leo sprints around third. He's coming to the plate. Leo's going to bowl Torborg over. Here comes the throw and the tag. And Torborg knocks DeRocher out. And uh, the effect on onlookers is electric. DeRocher out. <laughs> it, you know, it might as well have been Ingemar Johansson, <laughs> you know, with, with Floyd Patterson. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 
uh, the players did everything but count them out. And, uh, and that was sort of, people could see that moment and know that Leo's influence had waned completely. So at season's end, in typical sort of Dodger fashion, it was just quietly decided that Leo would not be resigned for, uh, what would that be, the 1965 season? Thank you for writing this book. Okay. <laughs> now, critics have often said that uh, the quintessential book about the Dodgers was uh, The Boys of Summer, but this book is in the same class. It okay. was beautifully written, um, very, very touching, and um, I'm very grateful that you wrote this book. These guys were my guys growing up. Um, so, Walt Alston must have had confidence of steel to deal with Leo DeRocher. Because Leo was, a, was the worst second guesser of Alston after the Dodgers, I'll say, blew the 62 playoffs against the Giants. He was the, in that clubhouse, which was really ugly after that third game, when they blew that two run lead in the ninth. Um, they were breaking whiskey bottles, people were cursing. And DeRocher is screaming out that Austin should have put in Drysdale to pitch the ninth. Of course, the story is Austin was saving Drysdale for game one of the World Series. Although I remember that laugh that ninth inning. I was crushed. I was crushed. I couldn't believe it. Um, Buzzy Bavese. The story is what the, the trickery that he played on these guys. Even Sandy. Um, when Babesi emphasized that um, ERA is not important, games one is not right. important, it's innings pitched. Right. Unbelievable. Right. But if you could tell, I don't know how much you want to say about Babesi about the book. Um, but again, thank you, Michael. Oh, sure. This well, let me a I mean, raise a couple of great points. So let me address a, a, a couple of them. Uh, one that relates to Leo uh, in the 1962 <coughs> playoff, and uh, uh, in the book. Uh, addresses this very point, and you'll know the very point I'm talking about. Uh, in that ninth inning, um, uh, after Matty Alou had gotten aboard, Harvey Keane came to bat with, with nobody out, and uh, Roebuck was on the mound, and um, uh, Roebuck was not a fireballer, and Harvey Keane was a very skilled opposite field hitter, right-handed hitter, very skilled at hitting the opposite way, but Roebuck was not a fireballer and was unlikely Keene was going to get anything to hit the other way, but uh, the Dodger second baseman at that moment, a rookie, was motioned over from his regular position over toward the gap uh, between first base and second base. Uh, so he, uh, Harvey Keene then hit what looked to be a tailor-made ground ball, a double play ball to Maury Wills at short. And um, uh, Norm Sherry, the Dodgers reserve catcher who was watching from the dugout, when he saw this ball hit, he thought to himself, this is a double play ball. A young Wes Parker who had arrived back, this was before he was, before he was ever signed by the Dodgers. He was just back from Paris for a couple weeks. And uh, he was just about to start that knock-around winter league. 
and his very well-to-do father had season seats. Wes Parker was in the stands watching that game. 22-year-old Wes Parker, and Wes Parker thought to himself, that's a double play ball. Everybody thought that was a double play ball. But Larry Burwright was out of position, did get to the second base bag to take the throw from Maury to get the force on Alou. But he couldn't, he didn't have nearly enough time to turn the double play. That would turn, and so instead of two outs and nobody aboard and a 4-2 Dodger lead, there's one on, one out. Uh, the inning unravels, and I, as a nine-year-old, throw a, a bowl of ice cream against the wall. There, true confession, that's not enough. Um, so, and uh, Larry Burwright never talked about that moment uh, publicly, because I don't think any journalist could find him or had given up on finding him. Uh, I reached one of his granddaughters, who finally put in touch with put him in touch with me, and the players had long suspected that one man was responsible for moving Burrush. Ron Fairley told me in an interview that he knew that this man had moved him. When I said Fairley, did Burrush tell you that? No, but I know it happened. <coughs> A number of players told me that, but no one said that Burrush himself had told them that. But when I taught, found Burrush. I expected sort of to find a resistant man. This man could not have been more jovial, could not have been friendlier or more gracious. And he said that he was, um, that a coach on the Dodgers had really talked his ear off since he had arrived, and he had thought the coach was okay. <coughs> so when the coach motioned him over, get over there, get over, he followed the instructions of Leo DeRoche. He went over, and so Leo moved him. And so Walt Olson, Leo DeRocher, as players knew later, Leo DeRocher had a lot of nerve. That was the common belief in the clubhouse. Maury was furious when he heard of DeRocher's criticism of Alston's pitching moves. So, were, so was Fairley. So were other players. They thought he had a lot of nerve for moving a player whom they all suspected believed had moved, had, had moved Burwright. Uh, the one guy, Burwright, I, I sort of expected to find a devastated man in Burwright. But Burwright, Burwright was just the greatest guy. He had just the greatest attitude about it. He said, you know, I'm like, you want to win, but it is still a baseball game. I mean, it was just so great. And he said one man helped him the most through it. And I think, I think most of you have probably read this in the book. In, in the off-season that year, he saw Don Drysdale. And Don Drysdale, who was just the greatest guy, just the, I mean, all these players, just the greatest guy, tough, the toughest of competitors on the field, the nastiest of competitors, right? But just so great with teammates, um, said to Burwright, hey, who moved Burwright? <laughs> so that became, to this day, when players get together with Burwright, it's the first thing they say, who moved Burwright? <laughs> so it, it's just great. And you know, and on the subject of Drysdale, you know, he was the Dodgers ace once. He was the Cy Young Award winner in 1962. And 
there would have been men of lesser character, men with less class, who may have been resentful about this phenom who supplanted him as the Dodgers ace of the staff and who would become um, arguably the greatest pitcher of all time, not Drysdale. You know, he was, he knew Sandy during the off seasons, sometimes couldn't get back to New York. Uh, he had, he made sure Sandy had a place to go on Thanksgiving, had Sandy over for Thanksgiving at, at a relative's house out in the valley, the San Fernando Valley. Um, they were just, they were just great. And he had, Drysdale had that wicked sense of humor, of course. You know, once Drysdale would hear, often pitchers on the Dodgers would not come to the ballpark on the night before they were going to pitch. So Drysdale was not in the park once during one of Koufax's no-hitters. And when he heard from a teammate that Koufax had thrown a no-hitter, Drysdale's response was alluding to how light hitting the Dodgers were, how, how, how they had to scrape for runs. Drysdale said, yeah, but did we win? <laughs> so it, it, it's just, they were just, they were just the greatest thing. You mentioned uh, that some of these guys are getting up there in years and yeah. Yeah, that's Mel. Uh, we need Melville back, right? Need, uh, um, you know, I don't think so. Um, for the same reason, I don't think that you know J.D. Salinger would have wanted that. And I sort of say that in the book when I was on the phone with him. You know, I, um, I've sort of come, I've come to sort of. Um, you know, he is a deity. He is a living deity, as was Salinger. And it must be hard, because wherever he goes, he is sort of a captive of the 1960s. You know, wherever he goes, people want to talk about the perfect game or the game one triumph right here against the Yankees in 1963 or the game seven triumph in Minnesota. Um, he is seldom allowed to be the guy who loves to come here occasionally to watch the US Open tennis tournament or go to a Final Four, you know. Um, he's, he's seldom allowed to be that person, just as Salinger was seldom allowed to be anyone but the guy who wrote The Catcher in the Rock. <coughs> so, um, uh, you know, I've come to, uh, I've come, I think, to better understand, and even feeling even hearing that gap on the phone where I knew he was trying to be gracious to me. He didn't want to offend me. He was just painfully uncomfortable talking about himself. And there's that anecdote in the book where he's at the White House and, um, um, and someone after the reception comes up to him and says that a family, that a relative, the family member had had been at one of his no-hitters. And to that moment on that evening, Koufax had just been so talkative, so, you know, so gracious, and he just sort of shut down. 
He just doesn't want to talk about himself. And there's another anecdote in that regard that I can share. You know, in a book that runs, I guess, whatever it is, 473 pages, you can't use everything. I heard from somebody else, a, another, somebody who's a pub, former public official, that he saw Sandy one night. He and his wife saw Sandy one night and uh, with a group of people, small group of people. It was a group of like eight, right? When Sandy found out that this man had been a prominent, was, the man still was at that time, a prominent public official, Sandy was, wanted to know everything. Sandy was an admirer of the man, wanted to know everything about some public policy efforts that this Democratic official was at work on. Sandy was, could not have been more engrossed in what this man was doing. And the man told me, the man told me on a condition of anonymity, but he said it was as if Sandy were a well-trained journalist. And uh, Sandy couldn't have been, you know, couldn't have been smarter uh, or more graceful in his questions. He, he realized that, that night that Sandy, had he ever wanted to, to be a politician, could have been a very successful one uh, and, and a great public official. And, and Sandy was such a great guy that night that when the evening ended, they walked out. It was a cool evening in Florida. And uh, it was a cool evening in Florida. This guy, this guy had not packed quite, he and his wife had not packed correctly. So Sandy took off his jacket and put it around this guy's shoulder, his, the, wife, the shoulders of this guy's wife and rubbed her back a little, made sure she wanted. And the guy told me, I would have voted for him for president of the United States. <laughs> you know, he said, you know, this guy, he said, was a combination of me of Barack Obama and John F. Kennedy. He was just, he was just wonderful. So they're walking back to, they were staying at the same place, a short walk from the restaurant back. And he said, Sandy, um, you know, I gotta tell you, I uh, played hooky. The, the guy had been in college, college? Yeah, college in 1965. He said, uh, I played hooky from a class. Um, on, on the day of game seven in Minneapolis, so I could watch you pitch. That was just amazing. He did it on two days rest. And uh, you were just sensational. And you know, it was the day I sort of grew that you, you became, he said, I know I've been tried to be restrained this whole night, but you became my hero that day. How did you do it? He just couldn't talk about it. He wasn't, you know, he was just, just finds it impossible. And instead, again, shifted the conversation to this man's great work in governance. So that's Sandy. And, and just one other point on, on Sandy that your great question raised, or that sort of evoked earlier, that relates to Buzzy Vavese. After the 1963 season, uh, Sandy had won 25 games. Um, he was hoping, you know, hope of hope, the outer end. He, he knew he couldn't get $100,000. No Dodger at that point in history had ever paid $100,000. Maybe he'd get close to 90, the feeling was. Maybe 85. But Vasey wasn't going to give it to him. But Vasey wanted to stiff him. 
Pavese wanted to give him only 65. And uh, as your great question pointed out, Pavese said, innings pitched, mean, that means more to me than wins, Sandy's 25 wins you know, that year. <laughs> or ERA, Sandy's league leading year. Or strikeouts, again. Or fewest hits per inning, none of that ma mattered, Pavese said, as much as innings pitched. Totally specious argument. It's speciousness compounded by the fact that Sandy had pitched the most innings in his career that year, and also his innings that year were the third most in the National League. So it was, it, it, it was just, the, the argument could not have been more transparently uh, deceptive. And uh, uh, Sandy, of course, in that holdout that year, uh, finally got Bavese to move and pay him the grand sum of $70,000. All that fighting over $5,000. So Sandy, early in 1964, suffers an inflamed elbow in early 64. And um, um, had, you know, in this day and age, and this says something about modern pitchers, the modern pitcher would have shut himself down, right? Because the modern, most mod, great modern pitchers have multi-year contracts. They're going to take care of themselves. You have a marvel in this city, 43-year-old Bartolo Colon, who's still pitching in part because at different points of his career, not every year, but different points, he had multi-year contracts. You had another marvel a few years ago who pitched into his 45th year, Randy Johnson. Um, again, another pitcher who had at different points of his career, multi-year deals, and if he got hurt, he could shut himself down and heal. Sandy Koufax couldn't in 1964. He knew full well that if he stayed out too long, he would certainly not get a raise from that $70,000, and that he may well have his salary cut. These, no player had multi-year contracts in that era. They were all one-year deals on the Dodgers and virtually every other club. And so Sandy, after he missed, he only allowed himself to miss two starts in 1964 with this inflamed elbow, and he had also a tendon problem in his forearm. He comes back in early May. The modern pitcher, of course, if he had come back, would have pitched what? You guys are baseball experts. Maybe he would have gone five. Six at the most, right? And if you had Sandy Koufax, you'd, you'd probably say five at the most. Sandy Koufax, that night, his first start back, works the full nine innings, and then, because the game's tied, he pitches the tenth inning. He only gives up, what's in the book, if my memory is serving me correctly right now, only gave up three hits through those 10 innings, struck, struck out 13 against the Chicago Cubs, and was ready to pitch on into the 11th inning, except Maury Wills made it unnecessary. Maury, who, of course, who was more often than not the Dodgers offense, and, and certainly, the, and more often than not, the Dodgers offense in the club, Maury made it unnecessary by delivering a game-winning single in Dodger Stadium on that cold night in which Sandy had labored through 10 innings. A couple weeks later, 
in May, after a tough outing against, again against the Cubs, he pitches on two days rest. Two days rest in May. We're not talking about the postseason. Two days rest, Austin sends him out in May to pitch against the Pittsburgh Pirates. He labors, he wins. You would think that'd be the last two day, the insanity of a two-day rest <coughs> in May or in the rest of his career. It wouldn't be the last time he pitched on two days rest in that month alone. Later that month, after a complete game victory against the Mets in Dodger Stadium, he pitches on two days rest in relief on May, Sunday, May 24, 1964. So for the second time in the month of May of 64, he's pitching on two days rest. If you want, if you want to know the signature moment of the folly at work in the Dodgers' handling of Sandy Koufax's arm, you need to look no further than Sunday, May 24, 1964. Two and a half years later, he would be out of baseball. So he pitches on that day, three inning relief stint, gives up no runs, earns the save in a three to nothing Dodger victory. And you would think after that, that the Dodgers would be taking a look at that arm, making sure he was okay, rethinking their strategy. This is May after all. Instead, in his very next start, on he's pitching again on only two days of rest yet again. The third time in the month of May, he's pitching on two days of rest pitches against the Cincinnati Reds and loses one to nothing. So in a span of seven day, six games over seven days, Sandy Koufax worked three times and labored 19 innings. So it's no, it's no accident as to why his career was shut, cut short at the age of 30. And there's so many forces you can attribute this to. Dodger management, of course, that didn't look after that arm. And those one-year contracts. You know, had Sandy Koufax said, no, I don't want to pitch, he wouldn't have pitched. They wouldn't have sent him out against his will. But Sandy knew full well that if he didn't pitch, if he didn't get out there quickly again, he wasn't, going to, he wasn't going to have any chance at a raise above $70,000, and he might get cut again. So, you know, when people talk about the good old days, they weren't so good. <laughs> you know, it's much better now for pitchers. It's much better now that we get to see a marvel like a Bartolo Colon at 43, whose arm was protected. 43? I would have loved to have seen Sandy Koufax at 33. And uh, as it was, you know, his career was over at 30. And so, you know, the Dodger, Dodger management, like the rest of baseball management, did, you know, did, did, a lot of teams did a lot of good in, in some respects. I give Bavese and O'Malley, I, I, I try to do this in the book, they're just due 
in, in many respects. This was, when you look at somebody like Buzzy Bavese, Buzzy Bavese, in many respects, when it came to issues of race, not only talked the talk, but walked the walk. When O'Malley sent down word that he wanted the minor league, before Bavese ever became the Dodgers general manager, when O'Malley sent down word that he wanted the Dodgers to live up the Dodgers' creed and integrate the minor league system, Bavese saw to it that that happened. And once Bavese, you know, almost got in a fight with an opposing manager who was riding African American minor leaguers on the Dodgers, you know, people like Newcomb, and and other, he wasn't going to stand for it, and. And so the Dodgers deserve a lot of credit in that regard. But there are other things the Dodgers, you know, uh, you know the Dodgers uh, could have treated their players more fairly at the bargaining table. Koufax, Wills, uh, the, co the treatment that it, it was, it wasn't right that a Koufax and a Drysdale had to beg in the aftermath of the 1965 season to be paid what they were worth. It wasn't fair that Maury Wills wasn't paid what he was worth. And Maury put it best. You know, Maury said that the worst part of it was not the money lost, but what it took out of, he said, what it took out of you as a man, that you were treated like that. And, um, uh, and you know, so it is. A, it is. You know, I, I, I think the Dodgers ought to be credited for uh, for their role as social pioneers in not only integrating the team, but as the '50s and early '60s moved along, being one of those few clubs that had a majority black ball club. And uh, uh, and since we're in New York. O'Malley and Bavese realized that good ethics was also good business. And you could see that in the 1963 World Series, particularly in game two, when Maury got aboard in the opening inning against the Yankees. And Maury and the Dodgers had already decided to run on the Yankees. They knew that the Yankees coming from a league that had a paucity of black talent, they knew the Yankees were unaccustomed to seeing great base stealers, particularly great African-American base stealers. And the Yankees wouldn't know, Maury told his teammates, how to deal with the Dodgers' team speed. So Maury got, when he Maury got aboard in the first inning of game two, he knew what he was going to do when the Yankees' starting pitcher, Al Downing, one of the few African-American players on the Yankees, when Al Downing, with his high leg kick, came over to Joe Pepitone at first base, Maury wasn't going to dive back to the bag. The Yankees might think he was going to pick him off if he took a big leg. Maury was just going to sprint down to second because he knew that the Yankees' second baseman, all-star second baseman, Bobby Richardson, and their all-star shortstop, Tony Kubek, were unaccustomed to dealing with what Maury was about to do, and the Yankees were. 
And as Maury would say later, he thought that if the Yankees had seen that kind of play often, he thought he might have been out. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm almost sounding like Larry David here. <laughs> uh, but Richardson and Kubek were confused over who would take the throw. They hadn't seen anything like that all season. Moy slid in safely head first, went on to score that inning. The Dodgers won game two, four to one, and would go on to see sweep the Yankees. So good, good ethics were also good business for the National League. The Dodgers was, deserve all the credit for that. But the way they treated Do players at the bargaining table was nothing less than shameful. And what O'Malley and Babesi <coughs> could not see coming, as other owners in baseball could not see coming, was that these kind of injustices served as the match that lit, lit the fire uh, that created uh, the players' union. And so thank God it did, because uh, we all get to see the Bartolo Colons. <laughs> we're we're going to get to, wait, John, we're going to get to your question right after this and anyone else's questions. But just as I wish there was no clock in baseball, <laughs> I'm not sure whether I had to put a clock in a game that shouldn't have a clock, but I wish there was no clock on our podcast as well, uh -huh. but the, unfortunately there is. <laughs> So for the podcast audience, we're oh. going to have to wrap this up. Okay. Then we'll continue in here. But all I want to say is, uh, just on a personal note, mainly to those listening to the podcast, since most of the people here do have the book, uh, first of all, it's worth the, pri the cover price alone for a photograph of a, uh, by a 12-year-old boy of Sandy Colfax. <laughs> that alone is worth the cover price. But... You, uh, should, you should tell that, yes. That, no, that's a little tease. Oh, a little, tease. A little tease. Okay. And, Those uh, <laughs> of you who read the book, no, I see. Uh, and we got into uh, the politics of baseball a bit in the discussion, but there's a lot of politics politics in this book. Right. Uh, personally, I used to work in politics, so I found it all fascinating. And uh, after I left politics, I worked as a sports agent, and one of my clients was Carl Nelson, who played for the football giants. He was the starting right tackle on the Super Bowl championship team, and then Carl had uh, cancer. And anyway, not to get into the whole story, Carl's doing great today, but uh, Bill Parcells, the coach, wrote the introduction to Carl's book. And he spoke about Carl as a person for most of the introduction, but he closes it talking about Carl as a player. Right. And he said, I don't like to use the word great because great gets thrown around a lot. So let's just say that Carl was better than good. And we've had... In seven years, we've had amazing writers here, Pulitzer Prize winners. Uh, they've all been better than good, every one of them. Uh, there's been a handful where the books have been great. And when, so, when they talk about the great baseball books of the last year, the last couple of years, The Last Innocence by Michael Leahy is a great book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.